This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you as always. Hope you had a good weekend. I'm sure uh, many of you are still shaking off the... (laughs) After last night's very surprising... Super Bowl win for the Patriots. I mean, surprising in that I was among those who, in the third quarter, decided that this was enough was enough. I was up very I had to get up earlier this morning. I did a Maria Bartiromo show on Fox Business for three hours. So I figured I should get some sleep. Decided to call it a night in the third quarter. Went back to my apartment where I do not have cable, as you know. And so I had to get the updates via text from my brother's that the Patriots pulled off, uh, as you all have seen, an incredibly improbable under the circumstances comeback, 28-3. And as much as I think the Patriots are the evil empire of football, uh, I have to give them some credit. You know, sometimes sometimes you got to look at the Death Star and just say, that's a pretty big weapon. And the Patriots were, were impressive last night, even though I, admit, I had to see the highlights of how they made the comeback. I missed the initial, uh, the, the the live coverage of it as it happened. <clears throat> so the uh, Super Bowl last night, there's uh, some effort to have a, a lot of uh, political discussion about what was what the commercials were, and I, I didn't find it particularly uh, irritating one way or the other. I thought Lady Gaga did a fine job at the Super Bowl halftime show. I had, I had read that she might come out and, and there might be some sort of a uh, political statement, and I, I'm sure if I were to dive into the lyrics, uh, there were there were messages that Ms. Gaga, whom as a total side note by the way, was a year ahead of my little brother in high school, and was dating a, an upperclassman from my brother's school when she was in high school. So uh, she went to uh, just as uh, as I- I- Ivanka Trump came to the Regis Junior prom. Believe it or not, with yours truly, which I mean, I don't even really believe it in retrospect now. Uh, but also, Lady Gaga, I believe, made an appearance at the Regis prom. Uh, whether it was junior or senior, I do not know. Uh, so Regis High School, a a somewhat a wonderful and somewhat nerdy institution, uh, scholarship Jesuit school, has has had its fair share of uh, rather prominent uh, young ladies to go through there uh, over over the period of years. So Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga. Uh, did her thing, and I have to say it was bringing me back to like 2006, 2007 with some of those hits. Uh, but she was, it was 
it was fine. Uh, there's nothing by not being political. I think she actually made a much bigger statement, or it was a much better career move than doing the obvious, which would have been to pull a Madonna and get up there and just make a complete fool of yourself with the idea that this is going to look good or or play well on the left. And certainly, there's a lot of virtue signal that goes on these days, and there's a, a recognition that. The crazier you are in your Trump opposition and in your Trump hatred, the more it seems um, many in Hollywood and in music and media uh, want to support you. So, yeah, Super Bowl last night. It was fine. Yeah, it was fine. I was just surprised. It was almost like watching two different games. With The, Fal- the Falcons were the first game, and then the second game was the Patriots. Uh, they, they, it was like parallel universes or... or I should say universes in succession, one one, one than the other. Um, but overall, it was uh, it was enjoyable. I hope you had fun wherever you were. My favorite part of the night was hanging out with uh, Ms. Molly and my brothers, my dad, and one of my brothers' uh, significant others, and eating a lot of barbecue, which was fun. Uh, brisket is fantastic. It really is. It's among among the, the great pleasures in life that I, that I can think of. Is really uh, well seasoned and moist brisket. So. Let's get into some of the news of the day. Uh, also, though, a, a reminder to those of you listening um, live, or if you're listening to the podcast right after the show today, uh, I will be starting in national syndication tonight, 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, Premier Radio Networks is the syndicator. They're the syndicator for Glenn Beck's show from 9 to 12, Rush 12 to 3, Sean 3 to 6, and then I will be 6 to 9 after Sean. So... Uh, very exciting stuff. I'm going to go down this afternoon, in fact, and see the new studio and meet with meet with the team. And pretty much, I'm I'm plug and play with the with the radio stuff. So as long as there's a mic that's on, I'll do the show, and it's going to be awesome. And uh, I I say this, I bring this up because I really want the team to uh, support me as much as as you are all willing to. If you can even call in in the first few weeks, first few days, it will be great to hear some of your friendly and familiar voices as I uh, tackle this new and very exciting challenge and trying to bring the Freedom Hut to even more uh, folks across the country, bringing it to even more homes or, I suppose, into more uh, eardrums. So that's tonight. Uh, it's going to be very exciting stuff and uh, quite, a, quite a long day, for even by media standards. I think it was up at 5 a.m. I'll probably be able to actually get to bed around or start getting thinking about the end of my day around and 10 p.m. tonight, I guess. So that's a long one. That is a long one. All right. Um, what was the... Oh, yes. Uh, so this morning I had a chance to go on to the uh, Bartiromo show and uh, spend some time. Maria's show is great, by the way. If n- none of you have ever watched it for some reason. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend uh, you give it a shot if you're up in the morning. They, they do a great job. They have really smart people on... Uh, as guests, and they mix it up so they get you get your news, the business news, main news stories, and also some some lighter stuff because it is the morning, and you don't want to just bombard people with constitutional crises and you know the latest uh, the latest histrionics from the press corps about how Donald Trump is really an, an agent of Russian intelligence or whatever whatever the issue du jour may be for them. Uh, so. The, the the big thing, and it's kind of fun for me because rarely, I think, do you get to break news or handle breaking news uh, around the 6 p.m. Eastern hour. Um, and tonight, it looks like there'll be a decision that comes down right around then with regard to the ban on the ban. 
So Trump has this executive order. We've been talking about this, of course, although I missed a good portion of it last week because I was, as I've told you, so, so sick. And then actually had a little bit of a relapse on Friday. Sorry, I was out team. I had another uh, health issue I had to deal with. So it was a t- last week was a tough week. Uh, but certainly you've all been following or hearing about this Trump uh, executive order on immigration, the so-called Muslim ban. And you have the Ninth Circuit, uh, which is a very, uh, very liberal circuit. Um, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is in San Francisco, is going to be giving a some sort of a, a decision tonight. And that's the expectation, at least. They declined to issue an immediate stay of Judge Robart's order. Um, so the Ninth Circuit, again, a liberal, a, as liberal a circuit as you're going to find, um, although, the, of course, the D.C. Circuit Court is now stacked with Obama, Obama loyalists because of the elimination of the nuclear option. Very savvy move, uh, very destructive, I think, to the country, but a very savvy move from the Obama administration to put uh, committed career leftists in lifetime appointee slots in the D.C. Circuit and to be able to just assembly line them through without even so much as a, as a meaningful peep from the Republicans. That will be one of the longest, that will be one of the longest legacies of the Obama administration, to be sure. Uh, okay, so the Ninth Circuit is going to be looking at this, or coming down with a, a decision on this, a, a stay on the ban, or as I like to call it, a, a ban on the ban, and they will be weighing in with what the specifics are, um, with what the specifics are on why it is that there are these these different courts that have come up with objections either to different different parts of this Trump executive order. You know, I, I we can get into some of the legalese of this, and, and you'll see a lot of that. And all of a sudden, of course, everybody's a, an expert on the extent of constitutional law. But there's that's, that starts to turn into an unfair criticism, I think, too, when you're talking about someone in the media. They've got to cover things. They're bringing you news and information and analysis. So if you're going to cover the news of the day, you can, not everyone's going to be an expert in all the things. This is why we have guests who call into you know, this show, every show. This is why you have panels on TV and you're trying to bring as much good information to bear as you can and put in the proper context. Here's the context as I see it, especially in light of some of the polling that Slate, which is a left-wing site, for example, showed in the early days a 7% margin in favor of the ban. There was a 7% margin that was pro-ban overall. Now that's gone down and I saw there's a CNN ORC poll that says that you know, now it's less than 50% supported but that could be the polling it could also Trump tweeted of course about this and said the polling is fake and it's fake news he is um, Trump has always got something spicy to say uh, or to tweet um, but the, the reason that you could have a poll that shows that at any stage of this a majority of the American people agreeing is there's just such a divergent view between the average American, particularly the average American who does not live in one of the Democrat stronghold megacities on the coasts, uh, or, or Chicago, I suppose, on the coast of a Great Lake, but uh, there's a, a very different view. If, forget about the nitty-gritty, the legalese, the specifics of whether the judge is going to throw out part of the executive order or all of it, or is, is going to say that this is somehow exceeding cons- uh, the president's constitutional and statutory authority. 
And that's this. There are plenty of Americans who feel like there needs to just be a, a reestablishing of a sense of sovereignty in this country, I mean that we have control over the borders and that our elected representatives are reflecting the will of the people with regard to control within this country. And step one of controlling a country is having control of the security of who's coming and who's going. That's at least one way of looking at this. That's, that's one viewpoint. And I think it's very widely held. Uh, well, I should say step one is defending us, and step two maybe is part of defending us is making sure that we have secure borders and an understanding of who's coming and who's going. Now, you see the media, they're very upset about this. And, the, and they're upset about it because they say it is, and I've, I've had a couple of even public exchanges on Twitter with uh, the New York Times' top ISIS analyst who follows me, and we, we've had exchanges before, and uh, one of the national security correspondents over at CNN. He sometimes likes to quasi-troll me, and we have little exchanges there as well. And what I see from them is that they say that the ban doesn't work, the ban... And I, I, I also disagree with the term ban. The problem is the administration has been using it. So it's very hard to defend, or rather, it's very hard to criticize the media for using a term that the administration also uses and say, don't use it. I think that there is a, there is a clear intellectually honest case to be made for how this is not a ban, but if they're going to call it a ban, then then ban becomes fair play. So uh, looking at this, though, the media is upset with it because they view it as a bad policy. Well, for, for, first and foremost, forget about whether it works or not. There's is it mean, and then there's does it work, and then there's is it constitutional. And they take it in that order. Whereas I think most Americans look at it in the exact reverse order with is it constitutional, does it work, and then is it mean? And by mean, I mean is does it make people feel like their Muslims are being singled out, and, and even though there's 50 Muslim-majority countries in the world and this only touches on seven of them. Uh, so that's it's a complete shift in perspective. It's a difference of the underlying premises of how one approaches this, whether I'm talking about people from the New York Times, CNN, they look at this and they say that this is against our core values because it is, we're so pro-diversity and the, what is it, the poem of the Statue of Liberty and give me your tired, your weak, you're hungry, whatever it is. And we're a nation of immigrants and all this ideological stuff that they factor into it. And then they also get into, well, we haven't had immigrants with a successful terrorist attack before, but they start to get a little lawyerly in the terminology. You'll notice that because there have been attempts by refugees before and because ISIS has been perfecting this for its own purposes in Europe and clearly wants to do it here in America as well. And the worst thing for the refugee program would be if a refugee did manage to engage in a successful attack on U.S. soil. Because then you'd have to shut down the whole refugee program, and also you'd have a bunch of dead Americans and people looking for answers. So that is the worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario is not a 120-day pause in accepting uh, Muslim refugees uh, from a, a, a small portion of overall Muslim-majority countries. But they look at it first as it's mean, and then it's not effective, and then it's we'll, we'll find a way to make it so that it's not constitutional. I think the constitutionality of this is clear. I don't think there's a, a, a real argument or debate on that based on existing, uh, pre, pre-existing and, and previously established uh, 
actions by the commander in chief, um, by congressional statute that's still out there, that's good law, and by just any number of precedents you can point to. Uh, but conservatives look at this, I shouldn't say conservatives, um, those who support this, because I think it goes beyond conservatives, and I know some conservatives don't like this, they view it as, well, hold on a second, He has, if he has the authority to do it, and then there's the chance that it's effective, right? So we're taking this in reverse order. He does have the authority. It could have some efficacy in preventing a future terrorist attack. We don't care that it looks like it might be mean or it looks like it's politically incorrect for some reason because we just don't care. It's a clash of worldviews you see happening here. It's really not as much about the legalese and all of that. It's much more there are some Americans who sit or sit around and say to themselves, uh, if we have to slow down the inflow of of people from seven predominantly Muslim countries and that has a one in a hundred chance of stopping a mass casualty terrorist attack, that's a deal we'll make a hundred times and twice on Sunday. Whereas the pro-Hillary, Democrat, pro-Obama, leftist journalist perspective on this is how could we sell out our core principles of being a, a near de facto open borders state? Um, and and how could we allow the executive branch to do something that is not... These, remember, these are the same people that want to ban all guns because it might prevent some future terrorist attack, right? But they say it's it's the, the efficacy is not worth... Is, is not high either. So they're just taking these in complete reverse order. And what you see is a, a clash of ideologies through the lens of the law and the constitutionality of this. But really, it's just they don't like it, those who oppose this. They don't like it. It's not because the president doesn't have the power to do it. And those who say the president has the power to do it look around and say, we don't care if other people don't like it. If it keeps us safe, that's all we that's all we want to get to here. Um, phone lines open 888-900-3393 team. Uh, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The sponsor this half hour is com. There is simply no better place to go when it comes to service, selection, uh, price, you name it. The best possible place to pick out a silencer for your firearm to get a suppressor is silencershop.com. You simply go online, go to their website. You can read testimonials. You can reach out to their customer service. They'll make sure that if you decide to get a silencer, that you get the paperwork processed as quickly as possible. They submit more forms to the ATF than anybody else in the business, so they are definitely the place to go. And a silencer is a must-have accessory for you when you're out there shooting, if you're out in the range, 
Um, you're going to enjoy shooting much more, and you're also going to look cool. So that's always fun. SilencerShop.com. Again, that is SilencerShop.com. Um, don't have too much time to go much more into the details here on the Trump uh, the Trump throwdown uh, with the judiciary over this executive order, at least a part of the judiciary. Uh, we'll get into more of that after the break. I do think the decision is going to be coming down tonight, which could be quite a, uh, could have some serious ramifications, could be quite a shock, a shock, a jolt to the administration. I think it should come down right around 6 p.m. when I go, Eastern time, when I go on air into syndication with our first syndicated show tonight, which is very exciting stuff. And if you're just joining his team, uh, you can go to uh, americanowradio.iheart.com for the uh, show page. So please do check it out. 888-900-3393. We've got much more coming. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, welcome back. We are joined now by Laura Wilkerson. She is chairman of Enforce the Law, which is an organization that she formed in order to advocate for enforcing America's immigration laws, defunding sanctuary cities, and securing the border. Laura, thank you very much for calling in. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, excuse my voice a little bit. I've been sick and trying to recover. Oh, I try. I can completely sympathize. I was out with the flu all last week. I could barely speak. I could barely move. So I hope you feel better. I'm sorry to hear about. Uh, sorry to hear about that, uh, Laura. Can you please just tell everybody a little bit of uh, of your background, how how you got involved in advocating for the enforcement of America's immigration laws and and the securing of our borders? Well, in 2010, um, my husband and I have three children, and Joshua was my youngest child, and he was brutally murdered, tortured, murdered, and then set on fire by somebody that was in this country illegally. And um, at that time, I guess when the detectives were going through it, you know, I asked, you know, where they told me he was here illegally. And I said, where are his parents? And then they told me we can't ask them. And that always stuck with me that they couldn't ask them where they are. You know, they can pull us over on the street anywhere we're going and say, you know, Miss Wilkerson, where have you been? Where are you going? And in a few minutes, it comes out in the wash and you're free to go home. And it always stuck with me about that. And that was my first uh, foray, I guess, into sanctuary cities. And that, uh, you know, it just stuck with me. And I decided we have to do something about that. There's no way that people get sanctuary from the law that are already here in this country illegally. Now, I know you, you had a, an exchange uh, with, with Nancy Pelosi uh, in which she, of course, ex- expressed her her. Um, her sympathies, but then went on to say that illegals, uh, illegal aliens in cities and sanctuary cities across the country uh, don't break the law, which just seemed like such a, a, a crazy and reckless blanket statement for a very prominent U.S. politician to make. But among Democrats that you come across uh, in elected office, I'm assuming that's not a particularly rare sentiment, this notion that illegal immigrants 
uh, are not an issue for criminality. This this is, you know, you, you tell us your personal story, which obviously uh, sheds truth and light on this. But the Democratic Party is very invested in this storyline that there's there's really no problem when it comes to criminality in the illegal alien community. That's exactly right. They're so invested. They just can't even begin to seem to hear the truth. I mean, you know, the truth is as we tell it. But for, for Nancy Pelosi, you know, I fully expected that out of her. She did a pretty good job of recovering. I think it threw her for a loop. But it's just a standard blanket, uh, you know, um, suggestion or what, what she said is, you know, um, Kate Steinle was in her own San Francisco. And we know he, he was deported four or five times and back to kill Kate Steinle right there in San Francisco. So what she said is just absolutely not true. And I think that they don't want you to know this is happening on a daily basis. They want it to sound like, you know, we're offering up sanctuary for these poor, poor people. And that's some of that is true, but not all of it is true. And you're going to have to hear both sides to real, you know, to even recognize which side you, you know, you want to risk. Do you want to risk your family for another family to come here illegally, come to a sanctuary city, be able to break the law and not get in trouble for it? I mean, are you willing to risk your own kids for that? Now, Laura, I know you're chairman of Enforce the Law, and everyone can go to enforcethelaw.org to learn more about what your organization does. But there are some major immigration policy issues that are getting attention right now because of the Trump administration. And there is a battle brewing over sanctuary cities specifically. I know that uh, over the weekend when Fox News' Bill O'Reilly sat down with President Trump to speak about this issue, uh, the president said, that he would consider pulling some federal funding from sanctuary cities. Uh, where does your organization stand on that, and what do you, what steps do you think should be taken in order to rein in these these areas of, sort of self declared lawlessness that decide that they're just not going to uh, they're not going to comply with federal immigration laws? It's a shame, but we're going to have to to defund sanctuary cities. I mean, if they would go along and follow the laws that they sort of uphold. You wouldn't have to do that, but that's where it hurts them. Money is where it hurts. I mean, it's what it, it's what makes it go around, and we're going to have to do that to and to make them just enforce current laws and uphold the laws. Nobody gets sanctuary from a law. I mean, how what a slippery slope to be on to give a certain percentage of people sanctuary from obeying the law. You or I would not get it, nor would any other American. It's absurd to think that anybody in this country can get sanctuary. Now, on the issue of the uh, the executive order on uh, that, that Donald Trump has recently signed as president, dealing with uh, Muslim majority nations and refugees and, and asylum, uh, do, does enforce the law? Does your organization take a position on that aspect of immigration, or do you really just focus on our southern border and uh, interior and domestic enforcement? I think that, that what he's doing is correct. You're going to have to stop the flow at some point. You cannot even assess who's in this country until we stop the flow. You know, they float around this 11 million number that's been floated around for years and years and years. That's not a true number. They're using that number from a census bureau. And you can't expect to think that people have you know, snuck across the border, come in here, are hiding, and not telling us who they are, and yet they're going to fill out a government census bureau. So there's no, nobody really knows, and we're going to have to stop the flow before you can even assess what's here and start, you know, we can at least start deporting mass deportations of the, uh, you know, people that have already convicted of crimes here. Let's get them out now. You know, we've got to enforce the border and stop the flow. That's the first thing we have to do. Then you can assess who's here and who can or cannot come in. 
How would you assess the Trump administration so far on the issues, the immigration issues that uh, are so near and dear to your heart and that you're spending so much of your time trying to advocate for change? Do you think the Trump administration is doing a good job? And, and are you expecting uh, are you expecting them to follow through on promises made during the campaign trail? Absolutely. I think that he is following through on it. You know, it's going to be a process, but he's getting it started uh, in these first few few days. And so I, I thank him um, so much for doing that. I believe he's following through on what he promised he'd do. It is going to take a while. There's going to be a process, but he's got to get started. We have to stop the flow into this country. We cannot continue to give away America to foreigners just because we feel sympathy for them. It, it's a never-ending. It would be never-ending. We've got to stop it. I think Mr. Trump in the White House is our only chance, and we've got to do it now. I think he's starting that right now. Laura Wilkerson is chairman of Enforce the Law. You can learn more about her advocacy and her organization at enforcethelaw.org. Laura, we really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you for uh, calling us. Thank you for having me. Team, the uh, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. I have to say, on the, uh, the sanctuary city uh, fight that looks like it's it's going to happen relatively soon. There are some complexities here. Uh, the funding the the funding that would be the most immediate uh, for the administration to withdraw um, would would at least to me it would seem to be very clear that it would be the uh, law enforcement foundation funding, um, and that this would be uh, that that's where you are most likely. I think to be in a situation where you could actually see a withdrawal of funds, a withdrawal of money. So uh, we'll have to see, team. We'll have to keep a close eye on it. That may not be enough in and of itself in order to get a, a change in uh, a change in what's going on. So um, that is one lever. We'll have to see if they can use more. 888-900-3393, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Show. Team, we're joined now by military historian and author James Steskall. He is the author of the upcoming new book, Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite. And uh, James served in the U.S. Army, first training as an airborne infantryman and serving with the 82nd Airborne. He then qualified for Special Forces and completed the arduous Q course to win his Green Beret. Uh, James, thank you very much for calling in. Hi, Buck. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. So tell us a bit about your book, uh, Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite. It's coming out here soon. What, what, what can we expect? What can you tell us about it? Well, first off, uh, it's a very long title, but um, it's a book that uh, a lot of people said that uh, I shouldn't or couldn't be uh, couldn't write because uh, the Department of Defense wouldn't permit it. Um, it was actually one of the most classified units in, uh, in the American Army in the service for, for that. But, um, you know, persistence uh, overcomes roadblocks, and after five years we got it, um, we got it published. It's really kind of two histories. Um, it's the history of the, um, the classified special forces unit, which uh, operated undercover in Berlin uh, during the Cold War from 1956 until just after the wall fell. 
1990. But it's also um, it's also the story of uh, some of the unorthodox men who served there, um, guys who understood that they would probably be shot uh, as spies if they were captured. Because uh, uh, and I was one of them. But uh, we all operated uh, in civilian clothes, and um, uh, we prepared for war. And so you go into some detail in this book. You, you said the Defense Department, they didn't want to talk about this. This was a classified unit? Well, it was a classified unit. Um, it was inactivated in 1990. Uh, when I started looking into writing it, um, it had been almost 25 years since then. And um, I figured uh, push the envelope. Um, there were no histories written about the book um, or about the unit. Um the uh, a lot of the documents were destroyed, and uh, quite frankly, uh, most of the guys that uh, served there, um, many didn't want to talk about it. But uh, the other half um, are uh, dying off, and it was a story that uh, if we didn't put it down on paper, it would never be um, it would never be told. Um, I went to the Center for Military History, the U.S. Army's uh, center over at Fort McNair, and um, Quite frankly, um, there was two. There's actually two units, um, but um, they did not have any information on it, and they couldn't tell me anything. So um, my knowledge of the unit from serving there, uh, interviewing guys, and the few bits of paper that I were was able to find uh, uh, around the United States and some in Germany, uh, put the put the story together. And there, tell me again. There, uh, they come from the office, or the originally they're from the Office of Strategic Services. Tell me a bit about this uh, non-conventional or unconventional unit here, and and uh, what its mission set was, and where it comes from. Well, the the history of Special Forces uh, really goes back to the Office of Strategic Services, which was uh, basically a civilian agency during World War II that was um, fighting in Europe and uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, against the uh, Germans and the Japanese. Um, after the war, it was shut down, but uh, in the 1950s, uh, some military officers uh, decided that conventional warfare was not the only thing that uh, the Americans should be able to do. And so they went back to the lessons learned from World War II and um, took it on to create Army Special Forces. And the first of the units was... Uh, the 10 special forces that went to bad tolls Germany, and they were still in Germany, as a matter of fact. And uh, then the 77th uh, that came along shortly after. Berlin uh, was six detachments, six A-teams. Uh, an A-team is 12 men um, that was selected and sent to Berlin uh, in 1956. Um, their mission was first to stay undercover. It was a clandestine unit. Uh, they were portrayed as something else, but really it was a special forces unit. Uh, no one other than the commander and his staff uh, knew that they were there. Their mission was basically to create havoc um, when and if the Soviets uh, and the Warsaw Pact decided to uh, attack uh, Western Europe. And that was to go underground um, wearing civilian clothes or, in some cases, um, enemy uniforms, sabotage railways, command posts, uh, and create as much havoc as they possibly could to uh, slow and distract the, the, the Soviet uh, army 
as they tried to move forward. All right. James uh, Stezkal, a military historian, author of the upcoming book, Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army Elite. Quite a title. Sure, it's quite a book. James, we really appreciate you joining us, and thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you, and good luck with your new syndicated show. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, team, phone lines are uh, are open here, 888-900-3393. Uh, we have much to discuss, so uh, do do give a call. Uh, also, I have to say, I, I thought the Melissa McCarthy impression of um, of uh, Spicer was actually pretty funny. I thought it was pretty good, all things considered. I have to say, I thought it was, uh, it was amusing. Um, and it's rare for me to think that anything on SNL is uh, particularly worthy of uh, of praise. I think that SNL usually is really political and weird and can be very annoying. You had that sort of homage they paid to Obama in his last day in office, which was, or for his last day in office, which was just utterly North Korea-like to me. I thought that was quite strange. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have to say, I, I think it was... In, in retrospect, looking at all of this, I, say to, I just say to myself, wow, maybe now that they have an administration um, that they are so opposed to, they'll actually do some funny stuff sometimes, although I'm sure it will also cross over, as it already has in some cases, into the sort of mean-spirited side of things and will be uh, quite, uh, quite um, beyond what we would just expect for comedy purposes. Uh, all right, team, we've got a big second hour planned here on The Buck Sexton Show. So we're going to hit into a break, and I'm going to be coming back in just a few minutes. So uh, stay with me. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Hey team, it's Buck. Uh, Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt Hour 2 today. Uh, Really appreciate you hanging out with me here and spending some time once again, as always, uh, with me talking about all the stuff that matters to us. I I think it's uh, well worth our time to, to get into a little bit of the latest information that's out there on the Islamic State and how it is conducting its attacks. There's been so much in the press in recent weeks with regard to the, uh, well, last week can change, uh, the travel ban. We've talked about the status of the, you know, it is a so-called ban in the sense that it's not really a ban. The problem, of course, is that the administration for whatever reason, uses the term ban. And so that certainly complicates matters. It's hard to defend them and say, well, it's not a ban, when they're then going out and saying, well, I mean, this is a ban. So I think we can all understand why that is at issue. Uh, So anyway, uh, there's been some new research done uh, looking into 
the way that ISIS conducts its attacks, an excellent piece that I would uh, commend to all of you, Not Lone Wolves After All, How ISIS Guides World's Terror Plots from Afar. It's in the New York Times by uh, Rukmini Kalamachi. I think she, uh, she and I have actually had some exchanges recently on Twitter about the ban. Uh, she does very good research. She obviously writes the Times and has a more, uh, let's say, left Democrat perspective than I do, but her work is uh, factually very strong. And it's interesting as well, there's a few people that are quoted in the piece uh, from a, a couple of think tanks who are also friends and uh, friends of mine, associates of mine. So it, it felt like um, looking at all these names, looking at this research in ISIS, it's like, well, at least I'm in direct contact with some of the foremost ISIS researchers out there. That's, that's helpful for my uh, analytic purposes. So it goes into what you would call this piece in the Times, uh, what you would call the various ways that ISIS is involved in attack plotting, directed, enabled, and inspired. Uh, when they say inspired, what they mean is just that somebody has chosen on their own, without any direction or uh, direct contact, most notably with the Islamic State, that someone has decided that they will uh, go forward with an attack in solidarity with ISIS, which it should be noted is an ISIS attack. And the Islamic State has said that this is something that they very much uh, believe in and, and want to have happen. So this isn't going outside of the usual steps or anything like that. This is what ISIS wants. So inspired just means that someone wants to engage in an attack on behalf of the Islamic State without any direct contact and without anyone necessarily uh, trying to give them advice, assistance, help. San Bernardino, Orlando, and Istanbul are all examples of ISIS-inspired attacks. Enabled attacks and directed attacks involve some level of contact. Uh, when, you, when you look at what this piece talks about, uh, they're actually discussing uh, attacks where there are... Um, there's not just direct contact with the Islamic State, but there is, in fact, assistance provided by the Islamic State. And they go into the details of a plot in uh, Hyderabad in India. And what they get into here is, is that, well, first of all, it had been the case for a number of years that, the, that ISIS claimed that the travel to Syria was a hijra. Hijra, that's Muhammad's journey uh, from Mecca to Medina. So he left Mecca to go to Medina. That's called the Hijra. And they're saying that this is to be like the prophet. You have to leave wherever you are and you have to go and travel to Syria and, and join ISIS in a very direct way. It's not enough to just uh, say that you, know, you want to engage in an attack. It's best for you to go to Syria itself and actually uh become part of the Islamic State, the, the actual state. But that changed because they realized that it's uh, harder. It's harder to get there now. The security services have clamped down. And it is also, uh, when you look at this and you start to get an understanding of um, where ISIS has been most effective, battles uh, on in the Syrian hinterlands and fighting between Assad, uh, Assad's thugs, uh, the... Uh, Shabiha, who were his, his militia, really. Yeah, sort of think of it like a, Assad's brown shirts. 
and various ISIS elements in Syria or even in Iraq get much less attention for the cause, of course, than the Islamic State can get for itself with a mass casualty attack outside of its borders. So what you begin to see increasingly is the understanding that, one, it's hard to, it's gotten a lot harder to get to Syria. The border between uh, Turkey and Syria has received much more uh, security service attention than it did in the past. And on top of that, the uh, bang for the buck, so to speak, uh, the usage of or the deployment of fighters inside of Syria does not have the same impact on this struggle from the perspective of being a global jihadist as as just engaging in an attack, especially if we're talking with someone in a major Western country who might already have citizens, citizenship, but anywhere in any non-ISIS, uh, ISIS-affiliated or ISIS-controlled portion of a country, there's going to be much more media attention for it. So they talk about this shift and how these cyber recruiters, which we've known about for some time, uh, there have been these cyber recruiters out there on the Internet that are trying to find, uh, we, the term is always disaffected young men. They're disaffected. I think it's also worth pointing out that they are um, not, the, the, the one commonality they all have is, of course, a, a belief in Islam, that this is not just something that comes out of nowhere. Uh, that is a precondition for their jihadist mindset. You don't have any believing Buddhists who are running to Syria to fight for the Islamic State. But we've known about the cyber recruiters for quite a while, and there's a change, though, that they've, from looking into the most recent, some of the most recent cases, recruitment just involves, hey, you know, let, let's, let's go back and forth here online. And they're using apps, uh, all these different encrypted chat apps, as a means of communicating, and there are just so many of them and they bounce around to different chat apps as well. So it, it, even if the security services are perhaps able to track one chat stream, because they use various chat streams and there's all these different apps and they can all be encrypted in different ways, it's harder for security services to stay uh, on top of this issue. Especially when you get outside of the West, you get outside of America, the uh, level of sophistication that some of the Intel services that are supposed to look at this issue, the level of sophistication that they have is uh, much less than what we have here in America or in a major Western European country. So they bounce around on these various chat apps, and that recruitment, we've talked about this before, that recruitment goes on in, in using just text and perhaps posting some YouTube videos and things along those lines. The difference here, though, is that what they've seen in, in the Hyderabad atta uh, would-be attack is... A, a very uh, key example of this is that now you have uh, ISIS handlers who are enabling the attack directly. So in Hyderabad, they were told to go get, to go leave, bring money and go to this place at this time, and there'll be a bag by the side of the road near mile marker seven with guns in it. In a country like India that has very strict controls on guns. So these procurement networks have also popped up. And they are using individuals inside of ISIS-controlled territory. They're using individuals who have native knowledge, who are from the place. And they've seen this now in a, in a variety of these attacks where they can link somebody up, let's say in France, with a native French-speaking and with the native knowledge of the area, 
with us. Uh, they call them really a, a cyber coach. Let me just give you a little uh, segment of this piece here. In northern France, a pair of attackers who have been guided by an Islamic State cyber coach slit the throat of an 85-year-old priest. And the pair had not known each other. And according to the investigative file, the handler introduced them, organizing for them to meet days before the attack. Intelligence records obtained by the Times revealed that the same handler in Syria, also guided by a group of young women who tried to, also guided a group of young women who tried to blow up a car in front of the uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And there are investigations into Malaysia, Indonesia, and Bangladesh, also showing recruits in direct contact with the Islamic State handlers who were molding plots directly, end quote. So this is more than just, hey, you should go and try to fight for ISIS. That's recruitment. This is recruitment and then acting as a virtual handler, a handler, a term borrowed from uh, spy, tradecraft, uh, espionage. If you were working with the KGB, they would have somebody that would be meeting with you and telling you what they wanted you to get if you were a, a trader, if you were working as a spy for them, and that would be your handler. So these are virtual handlers in the sense that you're not meeting them face to face, but they're telling you online, go to the, pick this target, do surveillance in this manner. Here's how you get the guns you need. They also walk them through, and this is really only a matter of time before one of these attacks comes to fruition in a horrific way. Um, but they also walk them through the means of building bombs and where to get precursor chemicals for bombs and the different ways in which uh, they think that they can um, get more uh, or a greater number of casualties if they are able to more expertly build these bombs. The biggest uh, problem that they've had with these sorts of attacks so far is the buffoonery of many of the individuals who have been recruited in this way. That's the, that is the number one issue. Um, what they've come up against is that these virtual handlers are giving good advice, oftentimes in the native language of the recruit, and knowing the terrain, the actual human terrain that he's operating in, if it's in France or if it's in India or whatever the country may be. In, in Indonesia, there was another case that they talk about in some detail here. And what they see is that these cyber planners who are operating in Raqqa, so they have autonomy and they don't have to worry about the security services coming to pick them up because they, they control the ground. And this, again, goes to earlier uh, discussions we've had on the show here about when I say a launch pad for jihad, there is something very different about having a virtual army in Internet cafes, although they're really just sort of internet banks uh, set up in a place like Raqqa in Syria that have contact with the rest of the world and that don't have to worry about police or security services. That's different even than an active operational cell somewhere else in the world. There's a greater uh, level of threat that comes from that, and there are uh, bigger issues that you have to deal with because you can't rely on any local security service to come after them. So they, uh, they go into uh, these various plots. And here's the, the big takeaway from all this, is that you got a couple of things happening simultaneously. One is the model of the Islamic State and how it's trying to um, disrupt and, and attack in the West is in a period of flux right now. And as they have more pressure from forces arrayed against them on the ground in Iraq and Syria, this virtual model is going to become the primary model, I think. It already is happening. And... 
this is a way for jihadists to link up from all over the world. This has been around for a while, but ISIS is perfecting the technique and using it with uh, much more uh, horrific results, unfortunately, for us here in the West and so and the rest of the world. So that will happen. And, and as they are squirting out of, as the bad guys squirt from Raqqa, from Mosul, from the surrounding environs, you'll see more of these kinds of plots. And the lethality of them could increase dramatically when you're talking about a recruiter who is able to both go into detail about the, the surrounding area and how you should do surveillance and all of that. Uh, there's some very obvious and serious concerns that attach to all of this in terms of the uh, increased effectiveness of the terrorist attack. So far, they have made mistakes with these, uh, but they're going to get better at it. And this is very hard to thwart. And these, uh, the, the underlying theme here, of course, in the very start is that these aren't really lone wolves. And to call them that in many cases is wrong. They are virtual uh, they are virtual fighters. Uh, they are attached. They're sort of adjunct, uh, adjunct jihadists who are attached to the caliphate in, in Iraq and Syria through the web. In the same way that people can you know, work from home, these are terrorists from home, if you will. And there's then when they look into these plots, almost a dozen of them, major ones, have had direction as well. So it's not just the, hey, go fight for, or, hey, go do an attack for ISIS. It's go do an attack. Here's where you get the guns. Here's where you get the explosives. This is what you should attack. Here's how you avoid detection. That's a level beyond what you've seen in, in many previous uh, uh, many previous jihadist-inspired or um, jihadist-involved uh, attack plotting. Uh, all right, team, I'm going to hit a break here. 888-900-3393 on the phones. Back in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, team, welcome back. Uh, I, I have to say the left's fascination or fixation, much better word, fixation on Russia and all things Trump and Russia just continues to uh, to boggle the mind. Trump is not the start of this evil Russia. Putin, for eight years of Obama's administration, Putin was doing exactly then what he's now. The only thing that has changed, the only difference is their belief that he, uh, that Putin involved himself in the election. And that is his unforgivable sin. All the other stuff, all the human rights stuff and authoritarian tendencies, they're jealous. They wish Obama could get away at the same level of authoritarianism as, uh, as Putin did and does uh, still continuously. And yet here we are, face the nation here. You've got Vice President Pence getting, uh, getting the usual media treatment on moral equivalency and Russia and Trump. Here's what he said that there was any moral equivalency in the president's comments. Look, uh, uh, President Trump, uh, uh, throughout his life, uh, his campaign, and in this administration, has never hesitated to be critical of government policies by the United States in the past. But there was no moral equivalency. What you heard there was a determination 
to 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 attempt to deal with the world as it is to start afresh with Putin and to start afresh with Russia. Look, we face it is not uh, un it, it, it is not unprecedented, nor is it unfathomable that the administration wouldn't want to come into office and begin antagonizing Russia right off the bat. Did Obama come into office antagonizing major geopolitical players right away? Other than our allies, I mean, other than countries that we actually like and are friends with. Um, was the Obama administration taking the posture that they were going to be really hard on Iran? I mean, you go back and look at the Iranian, uh, the effectively aborted Iranian uprising at the very beginning of Obama's time in office. There was no... Uh, there was no sense at all that Obama wanted to uh, call out the crimes of the Iranian regime. Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, they just well, they they twittered while Tehran burned. I remember reading a piece that that was the title, and I thought, yeah, pretty much. That seems to me more or less to to say it. That seems to be a, a clear way of putting it. Uh, but here here we are. They're always trying to push the administration into a corner on Russia, and I'm not obtuse. I'm aware of the fact that Trump seems to have some fondness for Putin. Bush had a fondness for Putin, should be noted. And Obama had a fondness for telling Medvedev, who's just a Putin stand-in, that he'd be more flexible with him in the future. Uh, But on the issue of Russia, there is no level of hawkishness that the Democrats won't go to. Uh, They took that whole Hillary Clinton loss very personally. And I just want to note, that's what this is really all about. It's not about national security. It's not about trying to find ways to bring us together in a bipartisan fashion because this is about the sanctity of democracy. They are upset. They are upset because Hillary Clinton lost. They think that Putin had a hand in it. And that's why all of a sudden they are demanding denunciations. All right, team, we'll hit a break. Back on the other side. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Hey team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you as always. And I wanted to get into some discussion of uh, the the media as we often talk about here on the show. We often discuss the media. You know, this is also when occasionally I'll have somebody who will point out to me, hey, aren't you a member of the media? And I want to say to them, is is that really your position? First of all, why is that? interesting in, in the context of this conversation who, who really cares if i'm a if i'm a member of the media i can't criticize the media and how should i refer to the media as though i because i'm a part of it i can't talk about it this is this is nonsense but you'll see this uh thrown around sometimes by those who are desperate to avoid some of the very clear conclusions that i think a lot of the american people have come to about the media in recent months and that is that it's every bit as bad as we think it is. They are every bit as partisan as we have thought they are for quite some time. 
and that when you look at the Obama administration and the way the media love them so much, now you see the opposite, the sort of equal and opposite reaction of the media to Trump. They just hate this guy. Uh, they absolutely despise him. They cannot stand him. They want nothing to do with him. And or they want to take him down, I should say. It's not that they want nothing to do with him. They, they just want to destroy his his presidency. But they recognize that it can't be that partisanship that is uh, completely naked and is obvious even to the most dim-witted of viewers is not effective or not as effective as it could be. A much more effective way for them to go about all of this is to try and uh, hold themselves up, hold up the mantle of journal, big J journalists, you know, people that are taking a truth-first approach to all of these issues that come up. Now, when you look at the way that the Obama administration uh, continued to handle itself, despite the fact that it had all sorts of, uh, you know, there were, there were problems, there were promises, there were lies, and they never really had to deal with a hostile press corps, the whiplash that I think many of us feel from seeing a, an openly, adamantly, and virulently hostile press corps is something that that is hard for any of us to avoid looking at it and saying to ourselves, wow, uh, they really do have a complete uh, hatred of Trump and they're just not honest about who they are, what they're doing and everything else. There's just a lack of core honesty um, when we're dealing with these media types. I also never understand, I, this is a digression I know, but you've got someone like a George Stephanopoulos who I think signed a $100 million contract with... GMA. Now, Stephanopoulos is a Clinton loyalist, a Clinton insider, gave money to the Clinton Foundation, worked in the Clinton White House, as you know, and he's able to put on the journalism hat without saying, I'm a Democrat. One of my favorite and funniest things that would happen at CNN sometimes when I was on contract there is they would say to me, well, or they'd say conservative political commentator Buck Sexton and political analyst Van Jones. Oh, I'm sorry. So Van doesn't have a political perspective. Van is just the facts, right? He's just the truth. I'm a conservative political commentator, so I am tainted with partisanship. But they have these other people that they would have on whom are just, who are just given the mantle of, well, you know, we're, we're the good people. Uh, we, we come with the facts. We come and speaking the truth. And... Another thing is someone like a Stephanopoulos, how they how they command these salaries, how they make this kind of money. You'll see this over and over again where some news media figure because in the news media, you are the only thing that makes you not replaceable, quite honestly, is audience that supports you, supports what you do. Right. So the only the only reason I have a job I mean, the only reason that I have any value in the media landscape really is because of Team Buck. I don't have senior executives at big media companies that want to write me fat checks and elevate me, I have you. And you know that this is my life's work now. This is what I do day in and day out. And I love what I do. And I try to do as much research and bring as much insight to the table every day as I can so that all of you listening, whether you're in school or you're uh, at home or you're at the office, in the car, wherever you may be, are getting something, getting value for your time. And, and all I ask from all of you is that you join me and you're part of the team. Right? This is this is our relationship. It is a it is a close and and um, sacred thing. And 
for a lot of the media personalities out there, though, for the Stephanopoulos of the world, they have a different setup, a different situation, and that is that they um, are protected from on high. They have very powerful people with huge checkbooks that run legacy media institutions that maybe they're losing audience but aren't going anywhere and can reward them for being good little soldiers for the left, not really soldiers, you know what I mean, for being uh, good little partisans for the left with huge fat paychecks. You want to be in the news media and you want to have a summer house in Nantucket or do you want to be in the news media and be editing your own videos in your studio apartment by yourself and, you know, trying to build listener by listener. Uh, I'll be honest with you, the way I'm doing it's a lot harder. It'd be a lot easier if somebody's like, well, we just like you and we're going to build you up from within our enormous institution with tremendous reach. And if you stay around long enough, we're going to write you some really fat checks, even though you're totally replaceable and nobody would notice if you're gone, but we like you. Those are the two ways to make it immediate. You either have a following or you're protected from on high. And Stephanopoulos is somebody who is protected from on high, which ties into his politics. That's why I'm talking about this. He knows that he's got to do his best to uh, hurt and uh, hobble the Trump administration. But putting on the big J journalist hat sometimes is the most effective way to do that. So so you had Trump saying that the judge that uh, overturned his order, Judge James Robart, was a, quote, so-called judge. And Pence, who's out there getting grilled about all this stuff, sits down with Stephanopoulos. And here's, oh, Stephanopoulos, pearl clutching right now, of course, because this is the most horrific thing ever. It's terrifying. How could anyone do such a thing? Here's what Stephanopoulos said. Is vowing to overturn that order. This morning he called it a ridiculous order from a so-called judge. So-called judge. Is it appropriate for the president to be questioning the legitimacy of a federal judge in that way? So the answer to this, of course, is no, that there's really no way for... um, the Trump administration or for, for Trump to be doing this without getting criticism for it. And I understand why people are critical of it. You shouldn't call the judge a so-called judge. I also want to point out that I don't really care all that much. It does not really matter to me that Trump did this. Um, when I say it doesn't matter, sure, criticize him for it and say that it's not really the tone you want in a president, but it's not going to change the way Trump speaks about things. We all know that. And Pence, who does exude a certain level of chill. And in that sense, I think he is a very uh, sensible vice presidential pick and vice president, vice president, I should say, for President Trump, because he is very unflappable and he just exudes a sense of like, hey, man, we're chill. Like, it's all good. Like, he just makes you feel like, how angry can you get about something or how bad can things really be if you have Mike Pence there sitting down and saying it's not that big a deal. So I think Pence is kind of like the cooler. If you remember from Roadhouse with Patrick Sweet, he's, I think he's called the cooler because he chills down situations in the bar. And Pence is kind of like the cooler for the Trump administration. So here's his response to this uh, question from Stephanopoulos. Trump's made it clear that our administration is going to put the safety and security of the American people first. And the executive order that he put into effect was legal, it was appropriate, and our administration is going to be using all legal means at our disposal to challenge the judge's order. I understand that, but is it it right for the president to say so-called judge? He already knows the answer to that. Is it right for the president to say so-called judge? Um, No, I mean, the president shouldn't say that. But 
is it also worth the media all sitting around and, and just hammering home this point constantly of Trump says things in a way that they find uh, ob- obtuse or they think he's a ruffian or they think that he is in some way, um, you know, not uh, communicating in a, in a way that's befitting of the president of the United States or the office of the president of the United States. And so the exchange then sort of goes on a little more. Doesn't that undermine the separation of powers in the Constitution written right next door? Well, I, I don't think it does. I think the American people are very accustomed to this president speaking his mind and speaking very straight with them. And it's very frustrating when, when scholars on the left and the right, people as distinguished as Jonathan Turley of George Washington University, have said while he doesn't agree with the executive order, he recognizes the president has the full authority to put the security of the homeland first in determining who comes into right, but this, this country. Judge but to see a judge actually- so there we have it. He's saying, yeah, look, this is the way Trump speaks about things. And for the record, what he did is legal. And I I think it will be upheld as legal, whether someone likes the policy or not. That's different from whether it should be overturned by a judge. But we have all these activist judges. And I know this is where someone would say, but Buck, this judge was appointed by Bush. Okay, well, so there are plenty of judges that have been appointed by Republicans in the past who have turned out to be left of center. And on this issue, I'd like to see some explanation, which we certainly haven't gotten yet, of why it is not legal. Foreign nationals do not have constitutional rights outside of the United States. That is just a fact. That is just a reality. Um, But if we're going to talk about undermining the separation of powers, I do think that it's worth taking a little step back in time and remembering what that was like when Obama was the president. If we're going to be all clutching our pearls, all so upset about the way Trump speaks about things, this was Back in, I think it was 2010, in front of, uh, this was the State of the Union address with the Supreme Court sitting right in front of him. President Obama does the following, says the following. Reference to separation of powers. Last week, the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. So you had Alito there saying uh, it was caught on video, not true. And he was right. That's not true. And now you get into the Citizens United decision, which is something that people who have never read and don't even know the basics of will act like Citizens United was the beginning of the long, dark night of fascism that we've had to suffer through and that we are suffering through now in this country. And Obama, as the commander in chief and as the president, calling out the Supreme Court in that way, calling out a Supreme Court decision to their faces. You want to talk about undignified and unpresidential? It was disgusting. It really was. And it was the the classic Obama gets away with things because the media is always in his corner moment. And I, I just want to see, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. Find it for me. Find me the clip. I want to see uh, where George Stephanopoulos is calling or called Obama out on that issue and said that it undermined the separation of powers and that it was undignified and unpresidential. You know what's unpresidential? Obama for eight years acting like every opponent of his on every political issue is acting in bad faith and is either a liar or an idiot or both and creating enormous straw men arguments to tear down without ever really taking a moment to grapple with the reality of what the other side is saying. Uh, That's unpresidential. That's problematic for a lot of us. That's irritating 
Um, and and uh, yet, because Obama had a, a really a pseudo eloquence, we were supposed to always be treated with this deference and respect. Oh, it's amazing. If you've heard Obama, he's so brilliant. He's such a genius. Yeah, the guy, like a lot of talented actors, if you give him lines, he can deliver them well. Off the cuff, he's deeply unimpressive. Uh, I mean, I'm just your, your humble radio servant here. Uh, in an open debate between me and Obama, he wouldn't stand a chance. Without his notes and without the ability to you know, have somebody else writing for him off a teleprompter, the guy is not that good off, off the cuff or on his feet. He's just not. But we were always told he was a genius and he was so brilliant. And you just see the disparities in the media. We're going to keep hitting them because I think it's important. It, it gives important context for what they're saying with Trump and how they're treating him. Because, yeah, I agree. Sometimes there are things that Trump says. And I'm like, I wish he wouldn't do that. But they always blow it out of a portion. They're always crying wolf. And I'm going to hold them to account for that. All right, team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Hey team, welcome uh, back to the Freedom Hunt. So uh, a couple of bits of business here. Uh, today will be the first day where you will notice this because the first day we're doing it, uh, where I will be on from 12 to 2 Eastern. So we're going to scale back our noontime Freedom Hut to two hours uh, for the for the weeks ahead. And my uh, friend and colleague Chris Salcedo is going to be picking up that third hour, which is great, uh, great for Chris. And uh, I, I know he's going to do a fantastic job and um, you know, it's more, more time with the Salcedo Swarm. Uh, so that's the way it's going to be here. Uh, 12 to 2, I'll be on. And then uh, at night, every night, 6 to 9 Eastern, I'll also be on the Blaze Radio. So I'll be doing five hours of radio a day. It also may mean that I sound a little more subdued at noon just because I don't want to blow my voice out uh, early on in the day and then at night be speaking with a hoarse voice. So if I sound that all subdued, you'll know why. Um, but that's the plan for now. So 12 to 2 Eastern uh, every day here, Monday through Friday, uh, the Freedom Hut continues on. And then the three-hour night show, uh, the uh, Buck Sexton with America Now, nationally syndicated, that will be on. And you can listen on the uh, iHeartRadio app, app uh, or also download it on iTunes. Please do download it. It really does help. So, uh, team, as you can hear, my voice is pretty much back. It's still a tiny bit shaky, but um, I'm very thankful that you were patient with me last week. I'm sorry that I was out. Uh, tonight, please join me. It would be great to have as many of you as possible 6 to 9 Eastern, uh, Buck Sexton with America Now. Listen on the iHeart app, or if you have a station in your area, you can listen there. Until then, my friends, Shield Talk. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. 